on PragerU and a proud spokesperson for Turning Point USA, today's guest is only 23 years old and is a proud ambassador for conservative millennials. Despite being a victim of direct bullying, doxing and threats um, during her early college years because of her dissenting viewpoints and conservative ideals, she has persisted to utilise her platform to voice the views of the silent majority. Proudly standing by her ideals and refusing to submit to the thought police, our guest has endeavoured to stand by the very rights that are under direct threats of the mobs of today, including the right to free speech. She's the host, producer and director of On The Frontline, a series intended to voice the experiences of college students who have also been vilified because of the differing viewpoints. And that's why today I am so honoured to be speaking to the one and only Isabel Brown. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Nah, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for being Voices of Reality's first ever guest and featuring our first ever episode. So thank you so much for giving me that opportunity. Absolutely, and right back at you. So um, I know that you're a proud supporter of free market. You hate communism, you hate socialism. I think most of us do hate these two ideologies. But um, it's when someone searches you up on Google or Wikipedia, they normally see a beautiful face plastered next to this Wikipedia biography of another Isabel Brown, who's known to be a communist activist. So how does it feel to be associated with a communist leader? Well, I find it really ironic, first of all, and I was actually asked about this on the news not too long ago during a live radio interview before I had ever seen that on Wikipedia. So I thought it was so funny seeing that at the time. Uh, but really, it's such a blessing now to be able to make my own name for myself and make a name for other young conservatives who are fighting so hard to just have their voices heard. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think if, if anything, it just acts as a motivator to help you build up that platform that you're long you're um, longing for. And I think you're doing a great job at that right now. You have 32,000 followers on Instagram, so congratulations um, on that achievement. And you know, you thank have, you. Yeah, you have such cool. Um, I think you have your Monday Q and A takeover, and you feature a lot of different programs, and you really do connect to a lot of millennials. Um, and I think that's amazing. So that's definitely a testimony of your hard work. So I wanted to rewind a little bit and understand what moment of your life really sort of triggered that sparking moment and that desire to pursue your political ambitions. Wow, that's a fantastic question. I think I've always been really politically inclined, mm -hmm. uh, namely because both of my parents are lawyers. So we would always talk about politics around the dinner table. My mom always made us watch the State of the Union every year when we were kids and presidential <laughs> debates. And, you know, we always talked about that stuff, which is a little bit abnormal in a United States household these days. Most people I grew up with were always told not to talk about politics around the dinner table. So I'm very grateful that my parents chose to go down the path that they did. But I was never interested in working in politics in a formal sense through my career or with a job. I was always a big lover of science and actually went to college to become a trauma surgeon, uh, was in biomedical sciences and ended up getting my degree with pre-medical studies. But while I was in college, looked around and I realized that nobody else was advocating for the values that made me who I am and no one else was advocating for a foundation of conservative thought on my college campus. And I think the namely most principal situation which I found myself in as a college student when I realized that 
was sitting in my student government chambers as a student senator, looking around the room and realizing that only one or two people agreed with anything that I was saying, but that we were making decisions and vote, voting really for political ambitions and political ideology for all 33,000 students on my college campus. And as soon as I even voiced anything remotely conservative, I was vilified in my student government meeting in the minutes with the administration sitting right behind me from my university as a white supremacist, as a racist, as anti-woman, as all of the things that conservatives are always called. Yeah. And that hurt at first. And the first few times I was called all of those things, I went home in tears, I'll be honest with you. But I soon realized that the only reason they were calling me these things is because the left is so scared of any sort of prominent conservative viewpoint being shared on college campuses because we're right. It's impossible not to hear the truth when you hear about conservative principles and when you engage with prominent conservative thought leaders. So that was really my turning point moment uh, where I decided it was going to have to be me to step up and start talking about those things. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, we conservatives are right wing for a reason. You know, they, they are right, you know, um, not to be biased or anything, but my friends make up this little motto. I'm sure it's probably copyrighted or taken elsewhere, but people... <laughs> Like there are people like Dave Rubin who have sort of left the left and we say he left the left because the right is right. <laughs> so <laughs> I probably, it's, I probably heard it somewhere, but that's sort of my motto. Um, and I totally agree. And not even, it's not even that they don't want to hear conservative viewpoints. They don't even want to hear, hear cent, uh, central viewpoints or even sort of soft left viewpoints. Um, they're sort of, they've turned into the AOCs of the, of the college campuses where apparently facts are, what was she, what did she say? Moral. It's important to be morally correct, correct, not factually correct. So there's this yes. AOCism, you know, emerging on the college campuses where feelings trump facts, and I think that's really an issue of um, that's facing us young people nowadays, and it's definitely playing a massive role on the, the style of education kids are receiving on in high school and um, at college as well. Absolutely. We're taught that facts really don't matter at the end of the day, that how you make someone else feel is what matters. And even how you intended something to come across is never, ever factored into the equation when you're on a college campus. It's always how it's received and how the person who was the victim of the situation is dealing with their feelings. So it's all about accommodating to the radical left and not really based on factual education at all. Yeah, no, I think um, Ben Shapiro says it perfectly. Facts don't care about your feelings. Um, but I think you also have mentioned that there was once a time where your, you know, your beautiful mother accompanied you on campus because you were scared in a sense. Please tell us a little bit about the situation and why you had to have a parental guardian with you on college campus as an adult. Well, the saga of my conservative journey on my campus continued after that first student government meeting where I decided it was going to be me to speak up. And right around that time, I received a targeted Facebook ad from Turning Point USA, which I'd never heard of before, for their annual Women's Summit, which happens every June in Dallas, Texas. And I didn't really know who about 90% of the speakers at the conference were going to be, but I saw Ben Shapiro's name on the ad. I saw Tommy Lahren's name on the ad. Uh, Carly Fiorina, who had just run for president, was a keynote speaker at one of the events for the conference. And something in my gut just told me, this event, you have to go to. You have to jump on a plane. I don't care if you know no one. You can just pick up and go. So I asked my younger sister to go with me. And from the very first moment of that conference, completely fell in love 
with the mission and vision that is Turning Point USA. Uh, it's really about igniting a spark of excitement and passion about conservative ideas, about limited government and freedom in the next generation that I had never seen before and that certainly wasn't being accomplished by any other existing youth organization, particularly in conservative politics. So I came back from that conference over the summer, and at the beginning of my junior year, I started a Turning Point USA chapter on my college campus, which is basically a conservative club for all the students on my campus. And it quickly grew to be one of the largest organizations in my student body. But as the president and founder of that organization was often targeted by the leftists on my campus for being that conservative girl. I was always called that turning point girl, that conservative girl. No one knew my real name, but I wore that like a badge of honor. And especially when it came to scheduling big events and inviting big name speakers to campus, including Charlie Kirk, who is the founder and president of Turning Point USA as the national organization, I received countless threats of violence, death threats, had my one bedroom apartment address doxxed. And if you don't know what doxing means, it's essentially posted online without my permission uh, and was really targeted not only by students on my campus, but by older individuals in the community as well, especially associated with Antifa, who is being well known all around the world right now through media coverage. And I'm glad that more attention is being brought to their organization. Uh, but at the time, I was 20 years old. So in the United States, uh, in most states, you can obtain a concealed carry permit to legally carry a firearm on your body or in your purse or your backpack when you're 21 years old. And in some states, that's allowed on your college campus. I was very fortunate to have that in Colorado, uh, but I was 20 at the time, so I didn't have access to that means to protect myself. I carried pepper spray on my keys, but honestly, if one of these crazy leftists really wanted to come after me, they had all the means in the world to do that. Uh, I was very lucky to develop strong relationships with the local police department at the time as well, but they couldn't follow me to all my classes and they couldn't walk me home from the library every night. They just didn't have the resources to do that. So when the death threats became that bad and eventually once my address was posted online, that's the last straw for my family. And my mom decided to come to college with me for a few days just to make sure that I wasn't alone and that somebody was there. And it was a very sweet gesture and it reminded me how great my family really is. But honestly, it was so embarrassing <laughs> to have my mom sit next to me in pharmacology and chemistry. My mom's a lawyer and she was a communications major in college. She didn't know what any of this meant. She's tapping my shoulder the whole time. Ooh, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I'm like, mom, we're in class. So it was really fun. And I appreciated her gesture so much. But it really opened my eyes to the fact that no college student should have to feel that way. And working the way that I do now with Turning Point USA, and especially with On the Front Lines, my self-produced series, I hear stories of conservative college students who have it a hundred times worse than I ever did as a college student, even with all that backlash. And I hope that we can draw light to more of those situations and just bring them out into the light for people to hear about. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think your mom coming and attending your classes with you is a testimony of how much your parents love and support your political career. I think um, politics has become extremely polarized. And for a lot of parents who have young children who have that interest in politics, they're normally scared and they're deterred that their child will be exposed to this big bad world of AOCs and Ilhan Omars, you know, snapping at you for everything that you do. Um, but you definitely touched on that point that you're not the outlier. There are a lot of other college students who have had similar experience, if not worse, and they don't have their mother there, you know, to attend classes with them. They don't have strong relationships with police. 
and it just it really upsets me that you know you know you guys work so hard to pay for college and then you go to a place you don't feel safe in and you have to carry possibly you know carry a gun on you just to feel safe and you know practice um your uh, uphold your second amendment but yeah that, that's really unfortunate and i think that you do also mention around that period of time there was um, a day of mourning almost after the, the results of the elections where you were given some sort of, I think, counselling as students to, I guess, comprehend the fact that some white supremacist misogynist called Trump could actually be democratically elected. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Absolutely. You know, my first exposure to the true indoctrination that happens inside the classroom not just with student government or the admissions office or the crazy social justice warriors on campus, but by your professors in classes that make no sense why this is happening was the day after the 2016 election. Like I said before, I was not in political science. I didn't study anything relating to the 2016 election. I was enrolled in biomedical sciences and Spanish language as my two degrees of study. And the day after the election, I showed up for class and my professor was 20 minutes late to our hour class bawling her eyes out and wore head to toe black as if she was going to a funeral with a veil draped over her face to signify the fact that she was in mourning for the death of our country. And I actually laughed. I, I feel kind of bad looking at it now, looking back on the situation. I couldn't help but laugh because honestly, it did not make sense to me other than the situation being a joke, how this could possibly be the reality of the class that I was sitting in. But I looked around and it wasn't funny anymore. When I looked at all of my other classmates, every one of them crying with the professor and nodding along with her, nodding along to the fact that she was saying, oh, my generation did this to you. It was all middle-aged white Americans that made sure that this racist, this white supremacist, this Nazi that literally Hitler was elected to office, none of you are the fault. And I thought for a moment, is it that impossible for a college professor to actually believe that a young American aged, I think I was 19 at the time, could have possibly voted for Donald Trump? Apparently it was. And of course, I thought that class would be an outlier in my day. It wasn't. I went through many more classes with the same situation that day. I was told by professors that students of color had unlimited time to finish their final exams, to finish their final assignments, that they could just skip the finals deadlines and that wouldn't matter. I was sent an email from my university administration that we would have free counseling to all students dealing with the traumatic situation of the 2016 presidential election. It was as if hell had frozen over on my college campus, all because of a presidential election. And I doubt the results had ever sparked some sort of reaction like that for President Obama's previous two victories. It almost feels like you're living in North Korea, but you're actually living in a Western state and you have the right to vote and he was democratically elected. And I think what that does, as funny as it sounds, it's actually quite detrimental because those politically sort of neutral students attending classes or the Republicans attending classes, they feel ostracized. They feel like um, they're the odd ones out. And now then they're naturally more, I guess, passive and less um, argumentative in classes because they feel like if they speak up, they will be vilified. So I think professors forcing their opinions upon students um, are definitely facilitating this intolerance on college campuses. Absolutely, 100%. I believe that it all starts from within the classroom, not just on college campuses, but even at the high school, middle school, and elementary school level as well here in the United States, what we teach young Americans, kids in particular, 
to believe ends up becoming their reality. And we're seeing the very dangerous results of that right now with the extreme rioting and violence that's spiking all across the United States. Yeah, um, that's something I actually want to cover on a little bit later because I realized looking at the videos, a lot of these rioters are young people. They're probably our age. Um, I could assume they're probably college students. They probably are Antifa members or pro-Marxism, clearly, with the way that they're acting. But this didn't happen overnight. That's, that's what people forget to realize. This is the product of leftist indoctrination on college campuses over time for about 20 to 30 years. And... I, I just want to yeah, spend a little bit of time discussing sort of the different contributing factors you think have, um, have played to this hysteria right now. Well, I think the fundamental reality of how this got started was that culturally we decided as the United States of America that around the dinner table with your friends, with your extended family, there are two subjects you should never talk about in order to be polite. And that is politics and religion. And that sort of came about when I was a young child that that was going to be our new norm. But no one really understood what the effects of that would be later on. Uh, but really what it has led to is an entire generation, perhaps two generations between millennials and Generation Z, showing up to their first day on their college campus, moving away from home, away from all of the influences of their family, their high school, their traditional group of friends, and showing up as a very naive, uneducated, unaware 18-year-old and the first person that they listen to is their college professor. We've never had a reason historically to doubt what the experts, our college professors, say about something, particularly in the subject that we are going to school to become an expert in. But all of a sudden, our experts are not experts anymore. They're people trying to push an agenda, even in subjects that you would never anticipate that that was happening. Uh, I was in biomedical sciences taking classes like physiology and human gross anatomy being told that there are more than two genders after I just learned about the chromosomal makeup of human beings or being told about the beautiful developmental process of a child in the womb over nine months, but then being told, but abortion isn't murder, so don't worry. And it was incredibly fascinating to me how even in the nooks and crannies outside of politics that you wouldn't anticipate that politics would find their place in the classroom, they were being injected into my curriculum and the curriculum of every student really on my college campus. So these kids are showing up to school, uh, showing up as adults in their first real on their own situation, unaware that those things are actually leftist indoctrination pieces of curriculum. It's not the truth necessarily. It's a, maybe a twisted version of the truth or a twisted version of the curriculum in order to fit an agenda. So the way that we combat that is that, A, we need to get truth back into the classroom. And I'm really grateful that the Department of Education is working so hard to do that for high schools and middle schools. Uh, in elementary schools in the United States, but it's really hard to do that on college campuses when you have tenured professors that can kind of get away with saying whatever you want. And B, we need to teach young people, particularly people going to college, to question everything that the experts are telling them, to speak up in their class, to offer a differing viewpoint, because otherwise the students in their classroom may never be exposed to that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm in my second year of university. I remember the first day of my first year experience, I heard more about socialism than, than um, about my actual units because all the socialist activists were coming in 10 minutes before um, our lecture time and rambling on how amazing socialism is and how it creates equality for all and it makes everyone happy. And I, I still didn't understand what socialism was properly back then. I wasn't too interested in politics then. Um, but if I was completely ignorant of what socialism actually means, I would have probably thought it was this, you know, some ideological utopia that will help us live a happy, safe life forever. 
So yeah, I definitely do see the importance for us as young people to be exposed to different opinions during our childhood um, rather than, you know, be sort of political infants on college campuses and be immediately indoctrinated by the leftist agenda. And I think another major contributing factor to this polarization is the disparity of conservative to left-wing professors on campuses. So um, I was reading a couple of studies and Jonathan Haidt, you know, articulates and substantiates this extremely well. And he says there's a massive surge of leftists and far left professors than there are centrist and, um, there's, a ma and there's also a massive decline of centrist and conservative educators. And what's this, what this has done is that because I think colleges have now, professors have adopted this I guess, freelance style of teaching, they're more inclined to enforce their political opinions on students and make them feel like this, their opinion, their truth is the truth. And I think that's another um, major issue affecting a lot of students on campus. Oh, 100%. And it's led to a really extreme raise in the number of leftist administrators too, even outside the classroom. The people that are hiring all of these professors, the people that are creating diversity offices and committees for every single department on campus are also extremely leftist and outnumber conservative uh, people in those departments as well. Yeah, and I think it's statistically um, within the social science and humanities field, which is, I think, what is meant to be liberal, but it's not very liberal anymore, it's just extreme, um, extreme leftist. I think it's for every conservative professor, there are 17 to 60 leftist professors. So there is a massive, massive gap between the two school of thoughts. And it's not about, you know, enforcing professors to adopt a particular opinion, but then it's inherently enforcing other students to take on these opinions. And it's subjecting them to this politically homogenous environment where they, the art of debate is diluted. Um, challenging opinions is taboo. And they cannot comprehend the importance of critical thinking to comprehend and combat um, multifaceted issues of the world we're living today. Well, the good news is when it comes to combating that reality and trying to change the way that the status quo is operating on college and university campuses around the world, not just in the United States, we're seeing a huge rise of citizen journalists and people taking to social media, having conversations just like the one we're having right now, uh, and really taking it into our own hands to make sure that that indoctrination stops on the campus and doesn't continue into our outside society. So I'm very grateful to be seeing that uh, and seeing more growth of that in 2020. Yeah, I think CNN needs to get canceled. And I'm against cancel culture, <laughs> but CNN is the fuel to the fear that citizens are experiencing right now in America. It's, it just contradicts itself. It makes no sense whatsoever. I honestly just watch CNN for just entertainment and also just to cringe for most of the time. So <laughs> I definitely see the importance of having individuals like us young people use their platform to speak, you know, speak their opinions and respectfully give the opportunity for someone else to debate them and challenge them. And I saw that actually on your... Um, your recent informative post on Instagram, why you voted for Trump or why you would vote for Trump again. And there are a lot of people on there that were not Trump supporters, but they really appreciated your viewpoint and they appreciated they actually had statistics and information backing your viewpoints. And it was not solely, you know, based on your emotions. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I was shocked that it reached such a leftist audience and people that really weren't my intended demographic for that post at all 
I was very surprised, especially because I didn't really use any hashtags or send it to any particular accounts to be reposted. So the fact that so many people did see that and actually engage with the post is proof to me that it really resonated with a lot of people who shared it to their own communities and among their own friend groups. Uh, but you're right. Sometimes in the comments, there will always be the crazy, angry, vile people who just are there to cause trouble and make people feel bad about their beliefs. But the vast majority of the comments in that thread ended up being either undecided voters who really weren't sure what they believed yet, or people interested in learning about a different viewpoint and potentially even changing their mind. So it really starts with one conversation at a time. It starts with being patient enough to educate people and not just dismiss them as stupid or ignorant or uneducated. Uh, it's up to us to really educate more young voters all across the world because they probably haven't been taught any sort of reality from the experts in their life. Yeah, and I have to commend you on how you dealt with some of these hateful comments. I saw a few swear words on there and you just replied with a God bless. And I'm just like, that is, that's beautiful. That is grace. I, I feel like you want to be the future Kelly McEnany, honestly. Oh, well, thank you. That's the sweetest thing you could have said. Honestly, she's my, oh, I adore her so much. She's just beautiful. And she deals with these reporters in such a calm I don't know how she says calm because honestly, if I was her, I would probably lose it. Um, she's very <laughs> polite and she claps back without you without name calling, but claps back with statistics and facts, and that's what they're scared of. And you see Jim Jim Acosta, whatever his name is, I don't even care about his name because he's just so annoying and so <laughs> ignorant. He always misquotes her on Twitter. And um, there's another journalist that always misquote that also misquoted her on Twitter, and, and then um, because apparently she didn't refer to AOC with her proper um position and title even though she did and all kelly McEnany did you know with that you know she didn't name call like aoc she didn't call her racist she just inserted the transcript and i'm just like subtle yet salty and i love it and that is the sort of that that's the grace that we need now in society you know and i, I really yeah. need you on that as the saying goes if you can't beat them join them but i actually disagree with that when it comes to the left we shouldn't adopt their horrible, vile tactics, calling everyone every horrible name under the sun. We should show them why our side makes more sense with truth, with logic, and with kindness. And when we do that, we have an opportunity to really, really change a lot of people's minds. I've seen the effects of that in my own life. I've changed people's minds that when you first saw them in our relationship, you would never expect that they were open to any sort of debate or conversation, but who now, like you said earlier, have left the left because the right is right. And just having calm, patient, kind conversations with those people not only created great friendships when we disagreed, but also allowed them an opportunity to change their mind. Yeah, and I'm seeing a lot of these um, TikToks, even though I think everyone should get on tic off TikTok right now, um, of people taking the red pill. Um, complete leftists, you know, who were just anti-Trump and anti-Republican, period, have taken the red pill. And they've seen Trump's um, efforts in human trafficking, especially now with this whole scandal epstein scandal that i realize oh we can't trust these celebrities who pretend they're politicians and who post these things and tell us how to think and what to say when they're actually hypocrites and the president is actually trying to combat these issues that are you know taking our children away and subjecting us to a lot of harm so i think the red pill is definitely being um consumed by a lot of people right now just because of how people like you are reacting to them and dealing with them in a respectful manner well, it's definitely an honor to be a part of that journey and that fight. And I think I came of adult age right in the right time when people were exploring with new mediums to connect with people, to go around the mainstream media who's really not interested in telling us the truth. 
uh, and just how to connect with people individually during this increasingly digitalized world. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I a little bit um, in the beginning of this episode, you spoke about how I think you're on student body and you were expected as a body to unanimously pass legislation on behalf of the 33,000 college students. And I think this just feeds into this radical emergence of collectivism and groupthink. So how do you perceive groupthink right now on college campuses? And how do you think we should deal with it? Well, if anyone hasn't had the opportunity to read George Orwell's book, 1984, they absolutely should. I just reread it recently and was reminded of how strikingly similar our current reality is to his prediction as of what the year 1984 might look like. And that concept of groupthink is really well outlined uh, within this brilliant novel where you're not allowed to step outside of the boundaries of what is considered societally acceptable to think. That's becoming increasingly common, not only on college campuses, but now as college students who have been educated to think that are leaving campus in the halls of Congress, on America's streets, within workplaces and conference rooms and boardrooms, uh, and even in your own office. So it's shocking to me to see just how far people are willing to go in order to preserve the concept of groupthink and preserve this societal expectation that we should all think the same way, the way of the left, that is. Uh, and that's becoming increasingly more common to see within particular groups of demographics. So women all have to be on the left. Black Americans all have to be on the left. Latino Americans all have to be on the left. And as soon as someone steps outside of that acceptable boundary that the left has set for that demographic group, they are completely slandered and vilified very, very publicly in order to make an example of them so other people don't do that as well. Yeah, and I think it's a repeat of history. I think it's sort of like it's ideological slavery in a sense. You expect people to act this way and you enslave them to your rhetoric and ideology um, without giving them the opportunity to uh, be exposed to different opinions and different ideas and challenge the norms. And I think the, I think the biggest threat to groupthink is free speech. But unfortunately, look back on college campuses, this, this free speech is um, limited with speech codes, microaggressions, trigger warnings, and that just, you know, fuels the rise of collectivism and it's just extremely toxic to society nowadays as well. Oh, for sure. And I saw a great example of that on my own college campus uh, when my university administration decided to put together this adorable little document called a free speech guide uh, that we're seeing all over campuses across the United States. And while it wasn't necessarily rules that students had to follow, it was a set of guidelines about words and phrases that you should or shouldn't say, because otherwise you might be violating our principles of community. Uh, and some of those words were hilarious and made no logical sense based on the actual evidence in front of us, like long time no see, which is apparently offensive and racist against people of Asian descent or food coma, which is apparently racist against black Americans. But also included in this list was the word America or calling oneself an American, uh, because all of a sudden, if you use that word, you might be insinuating in that conversation that the United States is a better country than any other countries in North and South America, which by any objective standpoint is true. But you can't actually say that because you might potentially be offending someone on campus. So this concept of microaggressions, of trigger warnings, of creating a culture that's a safe space on campus where no one can ever be offended 
and everyone has to follow those rules is really causing students and professors and faculty members to self-censor and prevent what they're actually going to say from ever being said. And that's the real danger of limiting free speech on college campuses. Yeah, I actually saw an Instagram post recently that apparently the word um, Hispanic is a form of white supremacy. Um, and I was completely shocked. And a lot of Hispanic people in the comment section were like, please just stop it with this stupidity. Stop stripping us, um, strip, stripping away our race and nationality just to fit in your agenda. Stop expecting us all to think the same, sound the same. It, honestly, I was really happy that people actually fought back in the comments because that's when you know, the people who actually wrote these posts might challenge their own opinions and see that they're completely arrogant and ignorant. Um, but I also feel like because of this group think on college campuses, students don't know how to communicate their passion and their um, dissenting opinions verbally anymore. And that's why a lot of a lot of them have become extremely aggressive in the way that they're expressing their um, their ideas. And we see that right now in the riots. There's this heightened aggression among so many people who are destroying property, who are destroying people's homes, you know, hurting, stabbing, shooting other people. And we and we actually see that same sort of behavior on college campuses like UC Berkeley, where I think student writers destroyed $100,000 worth of property because they didn't want Milo Yiannopoulos speaking on campus. Like, okay, we, we don't like Michael. I don't like Milo. I'm not a fan of him. But that doesn't mean I'm going to destroy the whole campus to make a point. Just articulate your point, start a petition, and find another way to, I guess, convey your message. Yeah, in many ways, what we're seeing is that this culture war that we've been fighting between conservatives and leftists for so long with all of these ideological battles is actually turning into and manifesting into some sort of physical violence as well. Uh, just a few weeks ago, a young 24-year-old mom, I think she was 24, uh, was shot and killed because she uttered the phrase, all lives matter, and that made somebody very angry. Uh, there's another video that's gone very viral of a young uh, white mom and her toddler. She's actually pregnant, the mom is as well, who were jumped on their front doorstep by a group of Black Lives Matter Incorporated activists uh, and were violently beating up this beautiful little girl and her mom. We're seeing statues being torn down. We're seeing people get punched in the face. Cops in particular are being targeted with extreme violence and are often being killed as a result of these protests. So you're right. I think it really does manifest from a point of being unable to express your emotions about a particular situation. And when you ask many of these activists why they're doing what they're doing, they simply say because peacefully doing a protest has never worked in the past to draw attention to our issue. So we just have to be violent. We have to smash windows. We have to break down property and tear down our history because that's the only way we'll get people to pay attention to us. That obviously could not be further from the truth. The civil rights movement, the suffrage movement, everything has been enshrined in our history from peaceful protesters who were very successfully able to change the course of history. Uh, and I'm just hoping that people are reminded of that reality of our history and the history of other movements around the world and that we can really draw attention to the fact that this violence is happening it's becoming a lot more common and it's really unacceptable in our society. Yeah, I think people are slowly dismissing the importance of language, the importance of, you know, words. And, you know, I think we're just too focused on the celebrities taking on um, the Twitter, uh, taking on, ranting on Twitter, saying that everyone's racist or uh, Nazi for thinking this way or acting this way. And so automatically we, we see them as a Jordan Peterson. We see them as, you know, um, Thomas Sowell, we see them all, these, we compare them to these in, great intellects and see that they have so much 
um, I, they have valid viewpoints, but in actual fact, I'm, I'm sorry, like, like Ricky, um, what's his name? What's his last name? Ricky Gervais? Gervais, the, yeah, yeah the that's his name. awesome. Oh, yes, he articulated that so well when he was um, hosting and he told them, seriously, don't get up and receive awards and give us a whole political speech. You don't know anything about the real world. And he's so anti-cancel culture as well. And I, I think that's amazing. And I think that just shows that we, we just worry too much about superficial individuals who live a very luxurious and very unique lifestyle that is different to most of society. And we entrust them with our life problems rather than actually reading up educating ourselves and making our own opinions that's just more than 284 characters long from a tweet from a tweet as well absolutely i'm very lucky to be able to engage in so many of those conversations and it's really inspiring to see other people step up and do that too yeah um so with all that we've spoken about and i think we sound a little bit a little bit pessimistic just because there there are a lot of issues now facing young people in america and also other western countries like here in australia where do you see a silver lining and how do you think we can peacefully make a change and i guess stand against all these leftist rhetoric of cancel culture of limited speech and um you know censorship etc I absolutely see a silver lining. And I think I'm really lucky to be able to do that working with Turning Point USA and traveling to college campuses and interacting with other 18 to 25 year olds every single day through social media from around the world. You know, there's a cutoff at around 1997, which was the year I was born. Experts kind of debate what the actual year was between millennials and Generation Z. And when you talk to older people in particular, our parents and our grandparents' generation, that cutoff doesn't make a lot of sense to them. They kind of just refer to all people as millennials who are younger. Uh, but there is a very strict ideological divide between millennials and Generation Z. Mm -hmm. Gen Z across the world has been already notified to be one of the most conservative generations since World War II. We're very passionate about free speech. Yeah. We're very passionate about debate and ideological conversation uh, and no longer censoring hate speech and standing up for patriotism within our own country. So we're excited to see that change between millennials and Generation Z. I'm really lucky to be at the forefront of that change and sort of leading that fight with Turning Point USA. Uh, and what we're also seeing with younger Americans in particular is that we're ignoring the status quo of how things have been done in the past. We're not turning on our TV and watching Fox News or CNN. We're using social media. We're engaging with each other in new and novel ways. Uh, and the vast majority of young people get their primary news from their Instagram feed, not from cable news. So it's exciting to see that change. And seeing more citizen journalists and young people speaking up is definitely making a difference. No, I definitely do agree. Um, and what sort of suggestions and advice do you have for young people who want to make a change in the world and want and want to make a platform like yours to um to voice their opinions as well well the, there's no secret anyone can do it is what i always love to say to everybody i never anticipated being a social media influencer i hate that word by Same. the way so i, I kind it. of gag every time i say that word it has such negative connotations as well behind it. it has such negative connotations you're expected to be like a vegan to look a particular way to say particular things to use particular makeup i hate the word influencer i Me just hate it too so we'll call it something else we'll call it creator i like that word better and it's catching catching ground here in the united states but I just about a year ago started making videos. I was really lucky to be doing that with PragerU and also with Turning Point USA. 
but there really was no secret. I turned my Instagram account to public and I started posting stuff. I didn't have to buy followers. I didn't have to do any sort of magic secret formula behind the scenes. I just started saying what was on my heart from my own personal convictions. And a year later, look what's happened. I'm a spokesperson for Turning Point USA. I'm hired to go on the news uh, and talk about this stuff every single day. I'm constantly on cable news and radio interviews as well. I post stuff for major brands and companies all over the world because I have an opportunity to talk about this conservative movement that's gaining so much steam across the world not just in the United States. So you can do that. And actually, I have found that when your role is just to primarily influence the people directly around you, the people on your university campus, the people who you call your friends or family members, and you're trying to change those people's minds, you actually are a lot more successful than the people who have a million followers and the people who don't really connect with their audience on a one-to-one -one basis all the time. It doesn't take a lot. Sit in your kitchen like I'm doing right now and make a 30-second video talking about a law that just got passed through Congress or your legislature about how that's bad and how you disagree with it. Talk about something good that just happened and why you're supportive of that. Uh, but when people see their peers and they see their family members and friends speaking up about those things, it resonates with them. And like we started this whole conversation saying the right is right. And when we hear truth, it has a ring to it. People will resonate with that and they'll start to change their minds and you can make a much bigger difference in your own community than you can possibly imagine. Yeah, it definitely is um, about the quality, not the quantity. And you and I do see you have so much engagement in your comment section, and that just shows that you are definitely making a change. It's not about how many likes that you're getting, and how many likes your little puppy's getting. No, sorry, Liberty. Um, but it's about <laughs> more than me. She's adorable. So yes, no, she actually is so cute. Oh my goodness, I she's just perfect. I have a dog too, and it's not even that cute. So I hope he doesn't get jealous for me saying this. Um, but yeah, it's about the comment section. I always like to read the comment section of a lot of political influences oh. uh, just cringe every time it stabs my heart um and just see how they're engaging other people and how other people engage with each other and i think it's just really important because um statistically proven a lot of young people would rather debate online than offline which it has its pros and cons i'm not a massive fan especially for really critical debates because the tone is not there but that's that's the reality of globalization and it's perfect that you have that platform and you're encouraging and you're refuting and discussing with people in the comment section as well. Absolutely. I think more people need to pay more attention to that. Uh, and you can learn a lot from reading the conversations that happen in comment sections all over social media. Yeah, I agree. So, we, you know, we're getting towards the end of the episode now. And I just wanted to ask you... Um, Hypothetically speaking, imagine if the whole world was watching this podcast right now, you know, I wish. I think, you know, they'll learn so much from you. You're definitely a gem. What would what what message would you leave um would you leave everyone and what would you like them to learn from your experiences as well? Wow, way to finish with like the best question I've ever heard in my life. I would want to tell everyone that you all have a role to play in preserving freedom across our whole country. You can't rely on other people and you can't be complacent and wait for someone else to speak up for what your values are and what the foundation of what you believe in is, because no one's going to do that if you don't. And what I've found in my own experiences on campus and since I've graduated and working now with Turning Point USA is that a ripple effect happens when one bold, brave person is willing to stand up for truth and stand up to reality. Uh, reality is no longer a given in our world that we live in right now. Our truth and my truth and your truth is thrown around like crazy. There is no the truth. But the more of us that are willing to be bold, to risk losing a few friendships here and there, to risk being called 
horrible names that have nothing to do with who you actually are, but is just the tactic of the left and stand up for reality, for truth and what is good and right. That's why that's the way that we will preserve freedom for all countries moving forward in the world. I don't want to see a world that looks like a million different Cubas or that looks like a million different communist Chinas. We're headed that way if people don't speak up and if people don't stand up for what is right and true and good. Uh, but we all have a role to play in that ideological battle and in this culture war. So you can do that. And sometimes it's just as simple as posting a short video, tagging someone in a post that you resonated with on social media, or having a conversation when you're out to coffee with a friend, even if right now you have to wear your masks. <laughs> Terry Masks from Thursday, if you are from Melbourne, or you're going to risk a $200 fine, so please don't do that. Um, oh. Yeah, I know. Um, so I think you said that perfectly, Isabel, and I think that's a perfect way for us to really end off our episode and the first episode of Voices of Reality. And I, I've said thank you a million times, but I'm going to say it a million and one time, times, because I am so thankful for this opportunity and, you know, for giving me this opportunity to practice you know, um, my talk, my speaking skills and, you know, setting up a whole podcast and getting everything ready is actually quite an experience in itself. Um, let's not mention how we've actually had try, tried giving this a shot a couple of days ago and everything <laughs> went wrong five minutes before and we lost each other because of poor connection. So I just want to thank you for giving me that opportunity and that learning experience as well. So you're a legend. Thank you so much for featuring on Voices of Reality. Well, thank you too. And honestly, it touched my heart so much when you reached out to me to be your first guest. I'm so, so fortunate to have this opportunity. And I've never been to Australia. I've never been down under, but it's a very special place in our family. My parents went on their honeymoon in Australia Aww. while my mom was in law school. Uh, my youngest sister's middle name is Adelaide because that's their favorite city there in Australia. So I'm really looking forward to the time that I get to come visit uh, and interact with you guys in person as well. Please tell Charlie Cook. Charlie Cook, if you're watching, okay, highly doubt he will be. Okay, you have a Turning Point UK. You have a Turning Point USA. There's another Western country that is also part of the Commonwealth, okay, that would like to be acknowledged by Turning Point. I will happily donate all my time and my non-existent life savings to help make this possible as well. Please don't forget about us. Australia actually exists. I'll start working on it behind the scenes. <laughs> thank you so much, Isabel, and thank you for joining me today. Awesome. Thanks so much.